This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. He's America's most recognized and respected frontline travel news journalist. And in this podcast, Peter Greenberg holds in-depth interviews with travel industry insiders, giving listeners practical news they can use on topics ranging from the shrinking carry-on luggage allowances to traveling through the Middle East. This is the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. It's time for another edition of the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor of CBS News. The topic, Cuba. It's open, and ironically, more than ever. Ironically, because airlines are now flying there on regularly scheduled service, and Fidel Castro, well, conveniently perhaps, passed away at the age of 90. It was going to happen anyway. But what do these flights mean to you? What does it mean to the economy of Cuba? What does it mean to Cuban-American relations in the new Trump presidency, where the president-elect is at least hinting at rolling back all the advances made by the Obama administration. Should you go now? Should you wait? And if you go now, what awaits you there in terms of the infrastructure, hotels, ground transportation, even bathrooms? All of these considerations on our show. Joining me today will be the editor-in-chief of Travel Weekly, Arnie Weissman, and the head of all regulatory affairs for United Airlines, Steve Morrissey, as well as the head of worldwide sales for United Airlines, David Hilfman. Uh, bottom line is, if you look at the history of Cuba, and I've been going since 1978. In fact, I interviewed Fidel Castro in 1978. And I remember the first time I got off that plane, it was a charter flight on Northwest Airlines. It was a 727. And the minute I got off the flight at the airport in Havana, I was hit with an unbelievable realization that surprised me. I was looking at a country for the first time in color. It wasn't in black and white. Every picture I'd ever seen about Cuba in every newspaper and every magazine was always black and white. Fidel Castro with his trademark beard and cigar and army hat um, appeared to be a tiny Cuban dictator until I met him. He was 6'4". He towered over everybody. And when he, when he spoke to you, he looked right in your eyes. He never took his gaze off you. It was mesmerizing. It was, it was almost, as some women would tell me later who interviewed him, intoxicating. Just ask Barbara Walters. Was he a communist? Was he a nationalist? Was he a brutal dictator? Or was he boxed in by a foreign policy of the United States in the late 1950s that didn't want to deal with him because they were worried more about their business interests than about allowing a country that had been under the rule of a dictator named Batista to, uh, to become free. Uh, and then, of course, Nikita Khrushchev seizing an opportunity when the United States ignored Castro and making those deals with him for oil support and economic support. And later, of course, in 1962, attempting to put missiles on the island. And we, of course, had the famed Cuban Missile Crisis with President Kennedy. Then there's 1989, when the Soviet Union collapsed. And what did Fidel Castro do? He basically made the U.S. currency legal tender and allowed foreign investors to do what? Build up the tourism infrastructure. 
people get get uh, propagandized very easily into thinking that the Cuban economy is based on cigars or rum or in the old days even sugar. Here's an answer. None of the above. What drives the Cuban economy is travel and tourism, as it does in so many other countries. And Castro was aware of this. And the deal that he made with all the foreign investors was come into Cuba, build hotels and resorts, build up the infrastructure. You can deal with it in U.S. dollars and we'll let you take your profits out in hard currency. And that's exactly what happened from 1989 until he turned over power to his brother Raul a few years ago. And when that happened, the U.S. dollar is no longer legal tender. Uh, they put a 10 to 30% premium on U.S. dollars in Cuba, and they came up with something, a, a currency unit called the CUC. And from that point on, if you were going to Cuba, the smartest move you would be making was to take down euros. That you could play with. Uh, but Americans never stopped going to Cuba. Don't kid yourself. The 1963 Trading with the Enemies Act doesn't stop you from going to Cuba. It stops you from spending U.S. dollars in Cuba. And that was really designed to stop U.S. businesses from transacting commerce in Cuba. But for American travelers, it never stopped them at all. In any given year, there were thousands of Americans who basically violated the spirit of the law. I mean, not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law by doing this, by buying all-inclusive packages from Canadian, Jamaican, or Bahamian tour operators in those countries, and paying dollars for that, by the way, and then flying down to those countries before connecting on a flight to Cuba. And once they did, their airfare, their hotel, their meals, their transfer taxes, everything was, was covered by that package. So they never really were violating the law. And in fact, the Cubans didn't even stamp your passport. So officially, guess what? You weren't there. And what was the United States government's response to something that everybody knew was going on? They ignored it. And my argument has always been the reason why they ignored it, because they could have easily stopped Americans from coming back through these third countries, because you still have to clear customs to come back to the United States. They could have easily stopped them and fined the Americans for doing it, but they made a conscious choice not to. And my argument is they made that choice because to do so would be to acknowledge how many Americans were actually doing it. It was an amazing double standard, tantamount to the... Uh, the Claude Rains character in Casablanca shocked to finding out that gambling was going on in Rick's casino and then collecting his winnings from the night before. And this existed through every presidential administration since Kennedy. In fact, every U.S. president since Kennedy wanted to recognize Cuba. They just didn't want to do it in the first term of office because they were worried about the Florida vote and the anti-Castro Cuban vote. Well, Kennedy never had a second term of office. LBJ never had a second term of office. Um, Nixon never had a second term of office. Ford never had a first, if you really want to think about it. Then there was Carter, who never had a second term of office. Then there was Reagan. With all due respect, his second term was a haze for many reasons and from many perspectives. And then there was George W. George H.W. Bush, who didn't have a second term of office. The first president who truly had a legitimately conscious second term of office was, was Bill Clinton, and he did want to recognize Cuba, and in fact, he pre-negotiated the deal that would have made it happen in the second term, towards the last part of his second term, and Al Gore was going to go down there, he was going to sneak down there and sign the deal, and basically, hours before that was supposed to happen secretly, a little kid named Elian Gonzalez washed up on the shores of Miami, and all bets were off. And... That is the way it stayed, certainly through the Bush administration, until now, in the second part of the Obama administration, the second term, 
the rules started to be relaxed and then relaxed and then relaxed again. And the various sanctions that were in place got redefined. There, was, there were 12 different categories officially that would allow you as a U.S. citizen to travel freely and legitimately to Cuba, all part of a people-to-people program of either research or education or, or um, uh, uh, you know, good Samaritan work, charity work, volunteer vacations, all those things. Even that's been redefined now because in order to do that up until recently, you had to go with a group that was closely monitored in terms of their day-by-day, hour-by-hour itinerary. itinerary. Now... Even that's not a requirement anymore. You can go down as an individual as long as you claim to have had a people-to-people experience. And let me define the way it's being defined now. You ready? Talking with your bartender in Havana constitutes a people-to-people experience, as it does in Brooklyn, by the way, but that's another story. So guess what? The, the, The gates are open. Airlines are flying down. And everybody who wants to be first on their block well, they can't be, but they can be second on their block and third on their block, and they're going down. And the real question now is how? Not, not if or when, but how, because people are going. How much is it going to cost? And will there be an infrastructure there when you get there to support it? Are there enough hotel rooms, bathrooms? Are there enough mass transportation opportunities? And what city are you going to? You can't all go to Havana. Are you going to fly in? You're going to cruise in. All these choices out there. And pretty good deals for the moment. Well, coming up, we're going to talk about that with the Editor-in-Chief of Travel Weekly, Arnie Weissman. So stay with me, Peter Greenberg, as we return in a minute to the CBS News Travel Hour. Back right after this. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it welcome back to the cbs travel hour with peter greenberg welcome back to the cbs radio travel hour i'm peter greenberg travel editor for cbs news the topic cuba when where how no longer if for most of you everybody wants to be first on their block Uh, I have an old saying that we all know those historical designations of A.D. or B.C. I add another one, BKFC, go before Kentucky Fried Chicken gets there, because you know they're going. Um, You know, the doors are opening, not just little by little, but lot by lot. Uh, The banks, U.S. banks, the the blocks have been lifted. They can put uh, credit card terminals down there. Uh, you can now use U.S. currency in terms of a credit card, which never was the case, a U.S.-based credit card, um, and merchants can now accept them. So things are changing. The numbers are changing. The administration already changed with Raul and may change again uh, as Cuba becomes more capitalist, which is almost inevitable. Uh, Airbnb, 8,000 listings in, in Cuba. Uh, The Cuban people are turned into free traders, which they've always been. Now it's even more. Uh, Joining me in this discussion, the editor-in-chief of Travel Weekly, Arnie Weissman. Arnie, you're watching this from a travel industry point of view. What are you seeing? Well, I think that there is uh, some concern among hoteliers, among the airlines, among the uh, one cruise line that so far has permission, Carnival Corporation, to go. Uh, They are not going to explicitly push back too hard at this point. I think they're trying to be cautiously optimistic. I asked uh, Carnival uh, Corporation CEO Arnold Donald directly about whether he had concerns about uh, President-elect Trump 
reversing some of the initiatives that President Obama has made on the day after the election. His response was that uh, President-elect Trump is a businessman and that he hopes uh, he will do things that will support the businesses that have already entered uh, Cuba. Uh, You had said before, travel and tourism is a key, key component to the economy in Cuba. It is certainly something that has high demand on the consumer side from Americans. It's the type of thing where actually you can't stop things from happening that everybody wants to happen. But... It can be made more difficult. Executive orders can be reversed. So, But the know, horses have left the barn. They, they left the barn even before President Obama lifted a lot of those things. Uh, the, I went to Cuba for the first time in 1992, exactly as you had said. I went to the Bahamas. I bought a tour package. I didn't have to spend a dime once I landed. It was a very nice hotel. I had a rental car, and I had my flights taken care of, and I spent a couple of days going around. And I'll tell you, the one thing about... Uh, travel bans that is uh, often not thought about, particularly if the reason for the ban is to support democracy, if this is done to try to lift some sort of oppression, is that, and I have found this to be true in communist countries under any sort of dictatorship, including North Korea, is that people are dying for contact with people outside the dictatorship. It's true in Cuba. It was true in Romania. It was true in North Korea. And this is a case where to cut off a flow of of Americans, of visitors from outside, is to actually hurt the people of the country who want to have some sense that they can get their message out to the world. And it happens. I mean, whether it's ping pong diplomacy in China, uh, the, the innovations that happened and the and the and the basic uh, entree that happened after the collapse of the Soviet Union in '89 with a lot of the former Soviet republics, right? What's the first thing they do? They buy a used airplane and start an airline because they know they need that kind of lift. Yeah, and what's interesting too is that sometimes uh, what you experience is uh, not what the governments who don't want the contact to happen. Uh, When I was there in 92, for instance, I stopped and bought some tapes, some tapes of Cuban music, and the cashier spoke English very well. And so I said, you know, I'm sorry to be leaving after such a short time in your country. She said, fine, you stay, I'll go. (laughs) <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, the, the, I think to be able to be exposed, that that one comment did ch- alter my view of, of the Cuban paradise. I mean, I didn't see it as a paradise, but it, it was just upfront in my face. Don't try to patronize somebody about, uh, you know, anything that they might think is so great there when, in fact, there's a... a, a the people who are actually experiencing it aren't quite so happy. Well, my experience dates back to my parents because my parents actually honeymooned in Havana in 1947, and they stayed at the National, the, the Meyer Lansky Hotel, right? And in, in 2002, I went down in one of my many trips to Cuba when I was then working at NBC on the anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis to do a story there, and my mom was still alive, and my mom, like many moms, keeps everything, and I said to her, you and dad honeymooned in Havana, didn't you? Yeah, in 1947. Where'd you stay at the Hotel National? Oh, do you remember it? Do I remember it? She goes and opens up a drawer. And in that drawer was the bill from the hotel, the room number. I mean, everything. So I wrote it down. I went to Havana. And I asked the person at the National if they could open that room. And I went in. And other than a bad old color television set and a, and a first-generation touchtone phone, 
Nothing in that room had changed at all. And my mom described the room and nothing had changed, you know, and, and people forget this is where people went on their vacation, you know, and they're now they're about to go back. But isn't it ironic that we're speaking at a time when all the U.S. airlines have been given permission to fly to any one of a number of airports in Cuba, not just Havana, um, and United being the latest to fly nonstop from Newark to Havana. Uh, at a time within a week of Castro passing away, an yeah. era ends. Well, it's interesting, you know, in terms of the, re- let's say, if, if President-elect Trump renegotiates a lot of the uh, points of the of the deal, one thing in terms of his messaging right now, which I don't know that he is really understanding how it's being heard, there's one thing about the Cuban people, and that is that they may very well have their criticisms of their own government, but they are fiercely, fiercely nationalistic in the sense that they do not want America telling them what to do. And I have a feeling there's no better way to rally people around a hardline resistance to what you want than to go in there and say, hey, we're, we're going to tell you what's going to happen now. Well, Let's look at this historically again. Here's a guy who takes power in 1958 or 59 from another dictator, um, and he stays in power, whether he held the office or not, right? Even when he gave back the reins to his brother, he was still in power, at least emotionally. And the United States tried how many times to kill him? <laughs> uh, how many times to assassinate him? I mean, he, if, if you were to be the assassination target hall of fame, he would be it, right? And yet, none of those attempts ever succeeded. And and I would suspect that one of the compelling reasons why is because at the end of the day, the Cuban people, I don't think, looked at him as a communist, but they looked at him as a nationalist. Yeah, and I think he has such a mythic stature that his death is probably the wrong time to be bringing up sort of to, for us to be thumping our chests. Because this, the people are remembering and they're being, they're memorializing and eulogizing him in very idealistic terms. And he was a leader who made an emotional connection with his people. So to have to have that happen right as you have uh, an American leader to be uh, saying, "Hey, you know, we're 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 going to not tolerate certain Cuban policies." That is not good timing. Well. It also sends a message to other countries in the region they could be next in terms of renegotiating deals. And Well, I think that's part of the message that President-elect Trump wants to send, is that everything's back on the table. And in a way, think about it. I get it. I understand it. But he has to tread softly yeah. and smartly. Yeah. Because, I mean, the one thing I've learned never having been president myself, I might add, <laughs> is you can't just move one chess piece without moving 11 more. Yeah. It does, it doesn't, it's not like turning off a light switch or telling somebody they're fired on The Apprentice. Right. And yeah, I mean, you don't want to have just one tool uh, in your toolkit. And if, you know, a rather uh, belligerent uh, first voicing is not necessarily going to, it may work in some cases, but it certainly isn't going to work everywhere. 
Now, what do you hear within the travel agent community? Is there pent-up demand there? Does, do, do the travel agents want to sell Cuba? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I think this is entering a bit of uncertainty and, and maybe a little confusion in the marketplace. It's probably going to have a suppressive effect just on its own, that people will be nervous that if they put a deposit down for a trip to Cuba, that it may or may not happen. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of pieces going on. Travel uh, industry companies, uh, Starwood, Carnival Corporation, uh, JetBlue, American, United Airlines have spent millions and millions of dollars getting ready, getting everything in place for this. They're not going to go without a fight. uh, But a consumer just reading that their trip next summer to Cuba, that's a long way away. They they may not want to put the deposit down. So travel agents are probably not thrilled to hear all this news. But, you know, it's interesting. If you look historically at other situations where you wanted to put stuff back on the table and you wanted to wield some power, if you're looking at your flights going into a country, let's call it country A, or the country A's airline coming here, you could say, okay, fine, we're done. We're banning your airline from our airspace. But Cubana doesn't even fly to the United States. So it's not an equal playing field, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, and it's not, there are no, at this point, Cuban hotel chains that are looking to get a foothold in, in Florida either. Well, they should. When you yeah. think of it, that would be a great thing, right? Yeah. Well, we know we, it's not a question of when or if people want to go. I, 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 would, I would argue that people who are either pro-Castro or anti-Castro or pro-Cuba or anti-Cuba, the one thing they all agree on is they still want to go. Everybody wants to go back or they want to go for the first time. Yeah. Right? That's what you're hearing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing is that it's, it is much, much more than Havana or even Havana and Veradero Beach, which is the main resort area. This is a country the size of Ireland. A lot of people forget about how big uh, Cuba is. So there's not going to be a situation where you're going to see, you, well, if you arrive in Havana you're going to, or, or Veradero, you're going to see a lot of tourists. But you can get out of those areas and be in an area where you're going to be the only tourist in that town. We're speaking with Arnie Weissman, Editor-in-Chief of Travel Weekly. I'm Peter Greenberg. When we come back, we've talked about whether it's going to be when or if, and I think it's going to be just when. It's not a matter of if. But it's also a matter of how. How are you going to go? When we come back, we'll talk about that. You're going to fly? You're going to take a cruise ship? You're not walking, but we'll talk about that when we return to the CBS Radio Hour about travel. I'm Peter Greenberg. Network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And we're back on the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor of CBS News. We've been speaking to editor-in-chief of Travel Weekly, Arnie Weissman, and the topic, Cuba. Not a matter of when or if you're going to go. There's tremendous pent-up demand over five or six decades, actually, but a real question of how you're going to go. And I guess, Arnie, that's really where the cruise lines come in play because they don't need a hotel. They can sail in and turn right around and sail out. That's right. They can, In fact, they can visit other ports other than just in Havana. I saw where the cruise port uh, in Havana was. Very, it's, you can walk it's off small. the ship. It's, it's small. It's very small. You can walk into the old town directly. <clears throat> And uh, you can also then get on the ship and go to the go to some other ports because right now hotel 
getting uh, into a good hotel is an issue. Uh, the reservations are booked up in some of the better hotels for months and months. And so a cruise is a very reasonable way to go. Only one cruise line has so far been given permission to go, and that is... The, one U.S. cruise line. One U.S. cruise line, thank you. And that is Carnival Corporation, and they're going with the cruise brand Fathom. Now, Fathom... Uh, which just, had one ship called the Adonia. Right, and which uh, will cease the seaside operation in June. So Fathom as a ship is going away. The They're Fathom, repositioning the ship. Correct, is going back to the P&O line. In the and, United Kingdom. In the United Kingdom. And they're going to be using the experience, which was a people-to-people experience. They're going to leave the name Fathom, but it's going to be used by uh, a name to be determined. It so be, Fathom will not be a cruise line, it'll be a program. Exactly. And it is currently in the Dominican Republic, where they also have these, what they call social impact tourism. But my understanding of, and by the way, I'm all in favor of those ideas, uh, I, I, that's a real people-to-people program that they're doing there. But my understanding is that it hasn't been that successful, uh, that the cruise passenger really wants a six-pack of Corona and a pina colada <laughs> and is not there to be in the Peace Corps. Exactly. And there was there was no casino aboard the Adonia, for instance. And uh, it was... The experience part always got very, very high ratings. The passengers loved it. The passengers loved it. I think that the marketing, they may have uh, put, they perhaps could have put some more effort against, let's say, church groups, which to me struck me as the type of uh, group that could have filled those ships. Um, But uh, it was more of a mainstream product. Carnival still holds the license. They could transfer that to another cruise brand, for instance, Carnival Cruise Lines, which is exactly what you said. You know, it's got the Pina Colada, it's got the casino, it's got the fun. It's got the Pina Colada. (laughs) But but the thing is, we're dealing with a different scale here, because the Adonia only had about, what, six or seven hundred passengers. A Carnival Cruise Line starts at about 1,500 and goes up. Correct. And uh, yeah, so you might not see, because as you said, the, the actual cruise port itself would need to be upgraded, I think, to take one of the larger ships. It could probably handle one of the smaller Carnival Cruise Line ships, I would think, or it might be a different brand. Right. But e- either way, you're going to have a lot of people suddenly coming on shore. And where's the infrastructure yes. to support that? Well, that's, I mean, that's interesting, too, where it comes in. And old, my guess is they're going to get directly on buses and uh, be taken to some place where there might be uh, to the Ernest Hemingway home to okay. somewhere. Stop yes. right there. I'm going to give you the three words I dread hearing. Directly on buses. I'm not being elitist. I'm just, when I'm on a cruise ship and we get to a port, unless there is severe infrastructure problem or language difficulty, I really don't want to get on a bus. Right. Well, I think that this the what you're what the first thing you suggested, which is the the cruise line is going to unload uh, passengers, fifteen hundred passengers all at once into a relatively, into a, a, a city that doesn't have the strongest infrastructure set up, and uh, it will be directly into Old Havana. The streets of Old Havana. There's a, a swath which has been kind of developed for tourism and looks pretty good. You walk a block or two off it, you see what uh, life in Cuba is like for most of the residents. But I think it, those who think that Havana isn't already some already pretty touristy are going to be surprised because Canadians and Europeans have been coming in for 
decades. Yeah, they, they laugh at us because they've, been go- they've literally been going for 50 years. Yeah. I mean, if you, you know probably the Floridita. Uh, oh, Hemingway's made, bar. Yeah, made famous by Hemingway's where the daiquiri was. When I went there in 92, I mean, I was about the only person in there. I went there recently. I didn't even bother going in. The, the, the tour buses were, were parked up and down around it. I uh, glanced in. There were people ten deep at the bar. I've had it. Yeah, for those before. of you listening to this to this program who have not been to Cuba, and and still want to go, and by the way, you should want to go. Um, you might be tempted to go to the Floridita. You might be tempted to go to the Tropicana nightclub. I'm not recommending it. I, it's it's just it's 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 not the experience it once was because it has almost been. Destroyed, if you will, by by mass tourism. Yeah, it's very different. But like I say, once you get out of Havana, you can have a, an incredible experience, a genuine, yeah. uh, authentic experience. The music scene is great in Havana. It's tempting to go to one of those Buena Vista social club right. package shows that the hotels all have, but you can see the real deal not too far away. Outside, that's right. What's the one challenge that you see? I mean, we know there's pent-up demand. We know people want to go. We know that you can go now. There, Just about every U.S. airline from at least one of their hub cities is flying down there. So what's the downside here? Well, I think there is that uh, uncertainty that has been added now uh, in terms of whether executive orders are going to be reversed. Uh, I think there is uh, going to be some difficulty getting a hotel room. There uh that may also lessen with the uncertainty if, if Americans do kind of pull out, although there's a lot of Airbnb stock. Right. Um, I think that the there there is probably less downside other than being able to be sure you get into a hotel that meets your standards. And I guess the other thing is getting a guide with professional standards. The good guides have been snapped up by the escorted tour companies very, very quickly. And my my challenge and my concern is it goes beyond that. It's you know it's a word that you and I have talked about before: authenticity and genuine. Um, how many of my friends go? Oh, I'm going to go down and get cigars. My friends <laughs> don't even smoke cigars. What are you doing? And how do you know you're getting a real Cuban cigar anymore? Because they haven't been able to ramp up their production. Um, and even if you do get a, a real Cohiba or a Monte Cristo or whatever. The problem is you're paying a huge premium because it's law of supply and demand. Yeah, enormous premium. And in fact, there are touts, cigar touts, uh, throughout operating throughout Havana who, if they see a tourist, will come up to you and say, hey, I can show you a real cigar fact. I'll show you, you know, and I can get you the real thing. I love it. Cigar touts. But uh, you know what? You know where you can get Cuban cigars? If you are interested in, in Cuban cigars, you can get them for Unbelievably low prices is Nicaragua. They subsidize cigar exports to Nicaragua. They're fellow uh, socialists in the region. And you can get, uh, I think it's about, I would say you could get it for uh, 20 cents on the dollar, the same cigars. And you just get them in the airports and you just buy them and it's. Stop over in Managua. Yeah, it'll pay for the trip. Wow. For the moment. For the moment. And for those of you who have been seeing all these pictures over the last 20 years of all the old classic American cars on the streets of Havana, the old Packards and Buicks and Oldsmobiles and, uh, you know, Fords and Chevrolets and uh, 
There are not that many of them left now because so many of the European car collectors have come in and snapped them up. Yeah, no, they're still. If, if when I was I was there a year ago, and they they are still there. Um, what in fact you can do is pay what seems like a rather steep price per hour to ride around in one. And a, they, a convertible, a convertible, and not the pink one. No, well, well they yes, the, the pink one. The pink one there. I've seen the pink one. Absolutely, and they, they are all sort of uh, in the near the, across from what looks like the U.S. Capitol, which is was modeled actually in the U.S. Capitol building. And there's uh, they are lined up. They're ready to take you for an hour drive for, well, not even an hour. I think it was like fifteen minutes for thirty bucks. It was not, and it was, you did it, didn't you? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so Arnie Weissen got ripped off in Havana, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Bottom line, where do you see Cuba travel in two, three years? I think that there will be, I, I think it's too, I think President-elect Trump will find it difficult to roll back a lot of the things he may want to roll back. I think there's a lot of U.S. business interests. He is, he is a businessman and he will realize that uh, the impact it might have on, on U.S. jobs even uh, is not worth going uh, rolling everything back. Plus, I think going back to the reasons President Obama stated when he started loosening the restrictions, the old way didn't work. And I don't think there's... And the any old way didn't work for a long, 50 long years, time. 50 years. So I, I going back to the other, the, the you'll get our money when you uh, follow our dictates, that is not going to happen. Yeah. That is not going to happen. So... So in a few years, I think it's going to be, there will be uh, more rather than less American tourism there, uh, unless the restrictions would be tightened to avoid the types of, like even if you went back to exactly what it was before President Obama was in office, the number of Americans who would be going there not in the, you know, defying the spirit of the law uh, would be increased because now more and more people have been there. They've seen it. It's really a great destination. It is different. Uh, the Caribbean, a uh, lot of islands. It's a little tough to find the culture, but Cuba is one where the culture is there and it's in a form that has been impacted by the West less than many other countries. And your advice, which I think would mirror mine, is go now. Yes. Yes, I think there's nothing to be gained by waiting. Now, we've talked about when and if and how, but historically, how did these routes come to be? How does an airline negotiate these routes in seriously uncharted territory at a time when there's high competition and uncertainty in, in the country that you're flying to about what they want, what they really want to get out of the deal? You know, one of the basic, you know, uh, component parts of any deal is what's in it for you and what's in it for me. We know what's in it for us. What's in it for the Cubans and are they prepared to to be honest about it and make that deal? So coming up will be the uh, one of the chief re guys in regulatory uh, uh, operations at United Airlines, uh, Steve Morrissey, who put this deal together and uh, will be joined by Steve when we come back to the CBS Radio Travel Hour right after this. Thank you, Arnie Weissman. Back right after this. A new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. 
Welcome back to the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. Doing these kinds of agreements between countries is usually difficult with any country. Uh, it's historic when it comes to a country like Cuba, which hasn't seen scheduled U.S. airline service in decades. Joining me now, the, the head of all regulatory affairs for United Airlines, Steve Morrissey. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine. Thanks, Peter. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of those airline geeks that like looks at the OAG and looks at schedules and tries to figure out how did this airline get a chance to fly between these two non-affiliated countries and all that kind of stuff. Here, we were dealing with rights between the U.S. and Cuba, many of which, well, most of which had been dormant for 50 years. That's right. Right? And it's my understanding that the U.S. Department of Transportation essentially deemed them no longer dormant but dead, and you had to start from scratch. That's been their precedent when they, yeah. when, when they look at, at rights that haven't been able to use for a long time for whatever reason, whether it's carriers or government restrictions, they've take, always taken the position that you know, they'll assess the market when, when rights become available rather than just hold them in dormancy. I mean, in a given year, you're not just dealing with Cuba. You're dealing with every agreement that you have with how many different countries is United flying to oh, now? Oh, the, the current number, I think, is 58 as of today. Right, and every one of them wants to be number one on your list or doesn't, <laughs> right? Depending on how we're doing, right? That's right. Um, and every country wants, to, in some way or, or another, is protectionist. They want to protect their carrier or their flying rights because it's all about, at the end of the day, it's about revenue and who gets to keep it, right? And in what currency, right? I remember, I'll tell you a story. This gets crazy. In the old days of Braniff, they were flying from Buenos Aires up to Los Angeles and, and from Rio to Los Angeles. And they were in trouble because the authorities there wouldn't let them take out their profits in dollars. And yet they're operating the plane. So they came up with the most unique way to make money. You know what they did? What'd they do? What they did was, what's, what's, what's Argentina known for? Leather. So they went into the leather airline seat business. And they scheduled their planes to fly to Buenos Aires and do a 16-hour overnight, during which time they took out all the fabric seats, put in the leather seats that they had made there, flew the plane back with leather seats, and then sold the seats. Right? So they were making money literally not by selling seats to me. They were literally selling the actual airline seat to other airlines. <laughs> so that's how they got around those regulations. But I'm sure you have those kinds of challenges all the time. Because there are certain countries right now, like Venezuela, nobody wants to fly there because A, they don't pay their bills, and B, you can't get your money out. It's part of what makes international aviation so exciting. Uh, every day is a different day. There are challenges around the world. But, um, you know, a company like United, we've, we've got a long experience. We've got people who have dealt with things like this, like opening a station like Havana. Um, well, many then let's, times let's over. talk about that. What were your biggest challenges? Because, first of all, you weren't alone. Every airline and their mother wanted to fly down there because it was everybody wanted to be first on their block, right? No doubt about it. They all wanted to fly to Havana. The Cubans were also saying, well, maybe not just Havana, but seven or eight other airports right. as well. Uh, so it wasn't like, hey, we'd like to come. Let's sign the deal. It was a little bit more complicated than that. Correct. Uh, this one... Uh Definitely was unique. I mentioned we have a team that that does this, a startup team. They're some of the best in the business. They they've started up new services at points around the globe with with challenges that you, you can't even conceive. Give me give me give me what your craziest challenge that you can talk about. Not about Cuba, just in general. Well, I mean, we're we're, we're typically going into, into places that aren't as as well developed commercially as as we're used to. So it's. I mean, there's a checklist of hundreds of things that have to happen for a flight to, for a flight to happen. Um, everything from the catering, the customs, the security, 
the, the uh, communications, communications, the provisioning, the the crews, and, and how they're able to enter and exit the country. Even the type of tickets you can write. That's what part of what makes uh, Havana or Cuba so unique. I think the challenges we faced here that might be a little bit unique. One was the time frame. You know, normally there's more time for startup. This was a very compressed case from the point at which DOT granted rights to the point at which we need to start up. So this was, 90 this days. was like hurry up and wait and then you better hurry up again. That's right. That's right. There was a 90-day startup condition and, and all of the carriers that, that got rights to fly are starting generally within 92 to 120 days right. of startup. Uh, on top of that, Cuba's unique in that there are still travel restrictions. So there are IT issues, technology issues, processing issues that need to be worked out on a very expedited basis. Foreign exchange issues. Foreign exchange issues, for sure. That's right. always that's always a big deal. I mean, somebody wants to pay cash for a ticket. It's like, wait a minute. Right. And, and you know, so... Um, our teams have worked through all those things. Um, they've applied the benefit of their experience to this unique situation. And, uh, you know, everything is going gonna, is gonna to be just fine. I, th- I think the thing that we never lost sight of is this is exciting. Uh, when do we ever get to serve a new point on the map that two years ago we didn't think we could? Um, and I think uh, the sort of outpouring of support for these flights was part of that sense of opportunity. Now, in the old days, and by the way, I qualify that as like last week, right? But in the old days, you know, if you wanted to fly, and tell me if I'm wrong, but if you wanted to fly a 737 down there, then the United States would say to the Cuban airline or the other airline in whatever country it would be, you can fly a 737 here. It was basically parity of seats, parity of flights, right? That's right. Is that still the case? Uh, This one's a little bit different. Um, I don't want to get into the, the technicalities of, you know, bilateral international aviation but um that's like reading my insurance policy <laughs> this this is a is technically not a a formal open skies or or bilateral agreement it's essentially an, an understanding to operate on comedy and reciprocity yeah because if you were doing open skies that would presume that the cuban airline had the equipment and the, and the, and the planes to, to to be open skies which they don't that's right that's right and there are still issues with the embargo in place and in um potential for asset seizures and that kind of thing that make this a little bit more complicated. Okay, I have to ask the question. If I'm Cuban and I'm living in Havana and I fly on United Airlines, can I join the frequent flyer program? Yes, you can. (laughs) (laughs) That was one of the the more complicated things that we needed to work out. But they wanted it, didn't they? They they sure do. See, that's the the power of the frequent flyer program. That's right. Forget 50 years of of embargo. The first thing they want, we want mileage. (laughs) That's right. And, and you know, um, of course, I'm biased, but we have the best mileage program. Oh, stop in the it, business, Steve. So. Stop it right now. <laughs> but the bottom line, even that gets negotiated. That's right. It does. Um, um, you know, again, something that makes Cuba a little bit unique is, is all of the, the body of regulations um, that don't have anything really to do with aviation that also come into play here. Things like um, foreign who, asset control and, right. and, and that. And who thing. can fly there? Who can fly there? The, 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 the 12 categories, you know, it's not just open and free for anybody who wants to go. Right. But you and I both know, wink, wink, those 12 categories are changing by the hour. We, we follow the rules as, as they're Yeah, written. yeah, yeah, Mr. Humphrey Bogart <laughs> and Casablanca. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, the, 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 those definitions are changing. I, I think part of it is sort of people-to-people exchange is, yeah. is very broad. Um, oh, yeah. If you talk to a bartender now, it qualifies as people-to-people. You know, for us, um, one of the reasons we, we sought service from Newark as our first choice is because of, of the large uh, Cuban-American population here. Stay with me, Peter Greenberg, as we return in a minute to the CBS News Travel Hour. Back right after this. 
a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And we're back on the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor of CBS News. Every airline and their mother wanted to fly to Cuba for years. Uh, it was the Forbidden Island. And then the Obama administration, in contact with the, with the Cuban administration, negotiated agreements that allowed the Department of Transportation to then designate airlines to actually fly to Cuba, not just to Havana, but to eight other airports on the island nation. And in this particular case, uh, United won the rights to fly from Newark to the capital city of Cuba, Havana. Joining me now, a good friend of mine, who basically is head of all worldwide sales for United Airlines, David Hilfman. How are you, sir? Peter. Man, first off, thank you for the opportunity to be part of your show. Secondly, you got a lot of action going on there. There was a lot of emails and Twitter handles and all. I mean, I'm I'm duly impressed. It's multitasking, Mr. Hilfman. You are a renaissance man, it, no, and air, always have been. No, it's air traffic control. Come on. <laughs> but... From a sales perspective, let's just talk about that, and then we can talk about history, too. I mean, there was a time where United Airlines, uh, and you come from Continental b- before the merger, but but before you at Continental, when United was claiming they would fly to all 50 states, there was a time when you did, right? Now yes. you don't. Yep. Uh, but now when you inaugurate a new route, that's a pretty big deal. Oh, it's a huge deal. And uh, as I was mentioning to the, all the folks who were at our gate event this morning, uh, you know, this this is historic for us for so many different reasons. Uh, and I've been part of probably 30 different uh, inaugural launch events around the world and United's, you know, all over the planet here uh, in, in new service. But for us, this Newark uh, Liberty to Havana, I mean, this is uh, this is pretty extraordinary. And for all the historical reasons, you know, but we're excited about it. Our employees are just thrilled. And uh, and I think our customers have indicated uh, they're pretty excited about it as well, based on the, the loads on the, the and the bookings coming out of the gate. Well, you're dealing with about, what, 50 years of pent-up demand. I think there is a little bit of demand. And, you know, you've got a great, uh, this this population base throughout New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, uh, obviously just all the unique ties, cultural, educational, and the economic opportunities we know. If we can get people to, you know, on this traveling down there and coming the other direction, I mean, this is going to be good for all of us. And yet, you know, for so many years, we were led to believe it was not a good idea. We were not allowed to go. Although the the law is an interesting law. You know, if you look at the Treaty with the Enemies Act, which goes back to 1963, it it doesn't say Americans are forbidden to go to Cuba. It says Americans are forbidden to spend U.S. dollars there. And it was really designed to stop U.S. businesses from contracting Cuban companies to do business. So as long, and so for years, and by the way, I was one of them, people snuck down there all the time. The Cubans didn't stamp your passport. uh, And what you would do so that you didn't violate the letter of the law People might argue that you were violating the spirit of the law, but not violating the letter of the law meant you would buy an all-inclusive package from a Canadian or a Bahamian or a Jamaican tour operator. You'd pay for that in U.S. dollars, but in those countries. And then you'd fly down to those countries or up to Canada or down to Montego Bay or over to Nassau. And next thing you know, you're on a plane going to Cuba. Your hotel has already been paid for. Your meals are paid for. Your transfers, your taxes, everything. And since they never stamped your passport, you officially weren't there. Now, the United States government knew all this. There were no great secrets. It was sort of like the Claude Rains character in Casablanca, shocked to finding <laughs> out that gambling was going on a Rick's Casino and then collecting his winnings the night before. And it's my position, and I will argue this infinitely, that 
the United States government never really arrested anybody or fined anybody for doing it because to do so would be to admit how many people were doing it. <laughs> and so now what we're doing is we're seeing a legitimization of something that's been going on for a long time on a much larger scale. Yeah, I, I, it's amazing about demand and how people's will uh, usually somehow gets... Uh, gets uh, I don't know how, how, how you would properly indicate somebody's going to acquiesce to that. I mean, the mar- there's just the demands out there. And, and I just think for us, the fact that this was all legitimized and that there are people been asking for this opportunity for us, the United States, I mean, it's a great opportunity. Oh, sure. and, and, you know, we're going to fly this daily out of Newark Liberty. We're going to do on Saturdays only out of uh, George Bush Intergalactic Airport out of Houston, Texas. So, uh, you know, for, for us, I mean, exciting times. And yet... It's been brewing for a while. This just didn't happen overnight. That's correct. I mean, it's, it's clearly um, the, the conversations between the governments, have, I think, has been going on for quite a number of years. And uh, uh, again, I think to, to your point, uh, people know what's going on out there. They've seen people uh, want to make these trips. They've seen them finding ways. And now to legitimize it, doesn't just, isn't it better for everybody to find a way to make it work? Well, I'm one of those people who believes that if you really want to break down barriers, even if it's the most oppressive government in the world, uh, and we've seen our share, travel and tourism is an effective tool. Um, it, it, it look, look at China with ping pong diplomacy. Yeah. Um, I'm one of those people who argues that within three years, we might be sitting here having a similar conversation about North Korea. Because if you look at his economic situation and his challenges there, he can't feed his people. He has, what does North Korea produce? This is my question. What does North Korea produce that the world consumes in any, in any form of volume? And the answer, it starts with a Z and ends with an O. Zero. Unless you're in the market for unreliable Scud missiles. Other than that, <laughs> there's nothing other than the potential of travel and tourism. And that model proves itself every single time. Look at the, the, the converse of that right now in Egypt. Nobody's going. Their economy is basically flatlined. Yeah, you said it right. I mean, you... Your, your point of view is so spot on in this deal. We know that when you have uh, an exchange of people for tourism, for all the uh, economic benefit on business travel, it makes a huge difference in the understandings of, of people and their cultures and their... Tra- it makes the whole world go around. I know that sounds a little cheerleader-like, but the fact, and, and, and frankly, in the airline business, why wouldn't I be like that? But we can see the exchange of humans traveling and cargo and all that goes with that. It makes a major difference, and we've seen it time and time again, the different countries. You know, you only launch San Francisco Tel Aviv. You know how amazing the uh, state of Israel is, and, you know, we've had daily service into Newark Liberty, double daily for, for a, over a decade, and then we started San Francisco. And for a country that small, to see that kind of of success on this new route on the West Coast, but it's incredible to see what it does for the economy. There. Well, if you take a look, you mentioned Israel. Uh, what do they produce that the world consumes? They do a lot of high tech, but what's after high tech? It's travel and tourism. Yes. That's their deal. You got it. Thank you, David Hilfen from United Airlines. That concludes our CBS Radio Travel Hour. We had Arnie Weissman, Editor-in-Chief of Travel Weekly, Steve Morrissey, the Head of Government and Regulatory Affairs for United, and David Hilfman, the Head of All Sales for United Airlines, all talking about one topic and one topic only, Cuba. All right, that's it for this hour. Peter Greenberg here. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.